Well, we want to welcome you today to, the, to Eisman World Baptist Church, and our children are dismissing now for their time of children's church. If you're in the ages of four to eight years old, and I'm amazed that I have to keep reminding our adults of the age limits for children's church. Uh, you have to stay here if you're bigger than that, but we want to welcome you, and if you're a child and would like to go, we've got some blessed, wonderful teachers uh, that will nurture and disciple those children to teach them who Christ is and the love of God that we have for him. So we are grateful to have them, but we want to say welcome. God bless you, and we hope you are excited and your heart is prepared as Pastor Corey has led us in some worship music, and Brother, Brother Robert opened us up sharing a few things. You know one thing that unites every one of us that have come here today? The fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, amen? And that we all understand that we come into the house of God, it is by the very grace that we just sung about, God's ransom at Christ's expense, that we can all sit here in a pew or even standing behind a pulpit saying, God, we are thankful for the grace that you have given us through the cross of Calvary. And maybe you're here today and you don't know what that grace is yet, but I promise you by the time you will leave here today, you will hear the word of God proclaimed, and he will explain, I will share with you through his word, what that grace is that allows us to be forgiven of our sins and to be truly cleansed within. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. So I want to share with you an image of Thanksgiving as, as Thanksgiving is upon us and we're celebrating this season, and Brother Robert did a great job of introducing our theme, if you will. But today, guys, i got to disappoint you. Today is not our Thanksgiving message. you got to come on Wednesday of this week to get the Thanksgiving message. So at Thanksgiving on Wednesday, the 24th of November at 6 p.m., we will have a Thanksgiving service here, and I want to invite all of you to come to celebrate before the bacon gets hot and heavy and all of that that goes on for our Thanksgiving celebration takes place. We will have a Wednesday evening service, and we want to invite you to that here at 6 p.m. and to give thanks. But here's one thing I know about Thanksgiving. Isn't it interesting that at Thanksgiving, it's a time where we remember a lot of the things that we're thankful for. We talk about the remembrance of memories and holidays and people and places and things and provisions, and we think about and we remember and recall all of those good things, and we celebrate what they are. We give a season of thanksgiving, or we give a meal of thanksgiving, or a prayer, or we discuss what we remember. I want to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 3 as we're working our way systematically through this wonderful Old Testament book. If you know where Matthew is, the beginning of your Bible for the Gospels in the New Testament, just take one left-hand turn and you'll find your place in Malachi chapter 3 in verses 13 through 18. And I'm going to share with you today the very issue of what I call faithful in remembrance, our title slide, if you will, for our sermon today, that God is faithful in his remembrance of all he has promised and all he has done to help the nation of Israel, and I would argue for you and I under the New Testament covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, the remembrance that God will declare to Malachi, to the nation of Israel, that he declares today to you and I, that he has a tremendous remembrance of those who have followed him. So I want to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 3 and follow along in verse 13 as I read verses 13 through 18 together. And I want to share with you a few things we can take away from this message today. Pick up in Malachi 3, verses 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my, treasure, my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray together over God's word. So Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And as we've already sung about your grace, Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit and the conviction that it draws, we will see your grace expound upon not only the lives and nation, the nation of Israel, but in our lives today as we give thanks for the grace of the forgiveness of our sins and the pardon atoned for by the cross of Calvary. Father, help us to remember the very things that you've promised and the very God that you are that grants salvation to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Be with all that is said, shared, and done. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Well, I want to share with you a few things. What are we going to learn and what am I going to unpack for you today? I would argue if there is such a thing as unforgettable, there's four unforgettable observations that we can make through these few short passages of Scripture. And I'm not sure why that mic keeps cracking, but our folks are working on it. It may be my beautiful beard, but we'll, we'll, we'll work that out. But I want to share with you four unforgettable things that we can take away from Malachi's text that hopefully we can put in our pocket, put in our toolbox, put in our, our scriptural knowledge bank, and take it with us so we can help avoid the very issues that Israel was falling under. Now, if you'll remember, if you've been with us from the beginning of Malachi, this has been a book talking about faithfulness from the nation of Israel, faithfulness from a people who were supposed to be a people of God. And throughout their, their generations, they began to wander away from God. And God is trying through Malachi, his very name, my messenger, trying to bring the nation of Israel back into right standing with God, bring them back to a place of righteousness where God's presence is dwelling amongst them. And I'd argue for us today, it is the same in its importance. But number one in verses 13 through 15, I want to share with you this rebuke that was spoken over the nation of Israel. And there's a few interesting things that we see here. We see people that are grumbling against God, and basically they have thrown their hands up in the air, and they say, you know what? Doing all this God stuff really isn't getting us anywhere. We don't need to worry about any of that. Let's just live our lives, and if God is who God says he is, then it doesn't really matter what we do anyway, and we'll just live it out, and God can be God, and we'll be us. Does that sound a little familiar than what we see going on in our own culture today? And ashamedly, I would say, folks, for the church, that's the perspective that many church-going people have about the Word of God. That it doesn't really matter. God's all infinite. God's all in control. God's going to do what God wants to do. If you just go to the pulpit, Mike, that'll be fine. God's going to do what God wants to do anyway, so what's it matter what I do? That's basically what Israel's saying here. God confronts them through Malachi, and he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And then they do what stiff-necked, hard-hearted people do, and they immediately offer their rebuttal once again. Well, what are you talking about, God? Look in verse 13 with me. How have we spoken against you? And in verse 14, he says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord? Man, I'm grieved and burdened often that we see so many things going on. But let me share with you Israel's posture towards God in this, issue, in this, this passage of scripture here. Israel's posture towards God. Three things that stand out to me as I read these texts. Number one, they had a position of indifference. A position of indifference towards the things of God where it didn't really matter anyway. Going to the temple on the Sabbath and keeping the Shabbat and, and all of those rituals, ah, whatever you want to do, it doesn't really matter. There was a position of indifference, a laziness towards God that even Zephaniah, one of the Old Testament prophets, writes about. And I want to share with you Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12. He says the following, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God's just going to be who he is. And we take a light stance to it. Folks, there is absolute danger in the church today when we also take to a position of indifference on things and we remain silent thinking it doesn't matter what we do because the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God is going to take care of all of it anyway. What good could we possibly be? Folks, we are the church, the bride of Christ. We are called to be his ambassadors to a hurting, lost, and dying nation that doesn't know what they don't know unless we take the good news of Jesus Christ to them. We cannot afford to be like Israel on this issue and have a position of indifference towards the things of God. But Israel's posture was not only one of indifference, it was also a position of arrogance. Notice in the text in verse 14 that they assumed that evil will go unchecked. They even state that here, Malachi through the inspiration of God, is telling Israel, who are you to proclaim what is good and what is not good? To say what God will do and what God won't do. Who are you to see what, say what God made an abomination is okay to do in the eyes of man? Do we see that happening in our culture today? We have so much confusion going on, there's almost not enough time to allow us to sit and explain what we see happening in our society and in our culture. But isn't it wonderful that the Word of God makes it very, very clear how He created us? I love that Genesis 1.26 passage, for God created them male and female, He created them. In His own likeness and in His image, He created them. 
He talks about the issue of marriage. He talks about the issues of finances. He talks about the issues of our heart. Isn't it wonderful that Scripture shares with us God's position that we as God's people are supposed to take towards the things that the world is in direct competition or direct opposition against? There's a position of arrogance that Israel takes, and often I think there are the position of arrogance that we can take in the church as well, where we assume for some reason that we know just a little bit more than God I would argue, thirdly, there's a position of assumption that we see in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed, and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This position of assumption is assuming that we know the ways of God. Isaiah 55 verse 8 will tell us the following. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. Isn't it wonderful that God has given us 66 wonderful books to help us understand the will of God? Often we get bent up around this issue of prophesying and prophecy and what does prophecy mean. And I love the biblical definition. If you go to one of those big dictionaries and you look at the definition of the word prophecy, what true prophecy means is to reveal the will of God to mankind. Did you know that every one of you, when you proclaim the word of God, are a prophet? Because God's already given us his word. What is the will of God? To seek and save that which is lost, that none should perish, but all should come to an everlasting knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, how difficult is that? Isn't it wonderful sometimes that the gospel and the truth of God's word is made so simple that even a babe could understand it, but even the greatest scholar cannot mine the depths of its treasures and find all that can be had. Israel's posture towards God was one of absolute indifference, arrogance, and assumption in this stage of life, but the danger is we can fall into those same traps in the church today if we're not careful. If we don't recognize that this grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within, when we don't recognize the grace that God's ransom at Christ's expense that was poured out on Golgotha's hill for you and me, that yet while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Man, I, I, I heard a church member one time confront me and say, Pastor, you're always talking about Jesus, and you're always talking about the cross, and you're always talking about salvation. We already know that, Pastor. We've been saved. Tell us something new. Folks, if you ever get tired of hearing the gospel proclaimed, you've just gotten tired. You need to be renewed. Because there's nothing old about hearing how much God's love was for you and I, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever perish, believe, which not perish, but have everlasting love in them. For God so loved the world, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, that's the truth of the gospel. And if we're under the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've been washed by the blood of the Savior, if our sin has been made white as snow, although it is red as crimson, we are part of the church of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful place for us to be. May no rebuke be spoken about our church. Amen. May our posture towards God be what it should be, not of indifference, arrogance, or assumption, but learn from the mistakes. I've heard it once said, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. Isn't it wonderful that we get the history of what Israel was doing as a nation so that we now as the church can be more sensitive to the things of God and have the proper posture I want to share with you a picture. Now, if you are an antique fan or you go junkin' like Shannon and I, junkin' in Germany was awesome, y'all. Because when you live in Germany, see, every year they tax you in Germany based on all the stuff that's in your garage, right? Many of us would have some significant financial problems if they taxed my barn, right? So in Germany, what they do is every year during tax season, the street curbs will be just piled with junk that people have thrown out of their garages, Matter of fact, Shannon and I got our first crib for our firstborn son before he was born from one of those street piles of junk. We're like, hey, there's a free crib. Let's take it home. We took it home, refinished it, and I used some stripper on it and put it in our bathtub in our little apartment. And little did I know that the stripper took all the glue out too. <laughs> and when Trey's sitting in that, he's sitting in that crib for the first year and he gets big enough to stand and he starts rocking on that thing one night and we start hearing, dink, 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 dink. What happened? All the spindles were coming out of the crib, y'all. It was falling all over the ground. But isn't it wonderful? But we, we still pass by junk. I'll, I'll just admit it. Can I be honest for a moment? We can't pass the trash pile without looking at it. I'm going by my car and we look at it. And she's like, keep your eyes on the road. We don't need, it. We don't need no more, right? 
But isn't it funny that we have these shows like the Antique Roadshow that we bring our junk that we found and we sit it up on a platform and we get this so-called expert to come in and we're hoping that we have found the mother load, right? The treasure, the value, we hope that when we tear that oil painting, paint by numbers off, behind it is a Picasso. We just didn't know it was there, right? How many of y'all think about that when you go and look at a picture? You go to Goodwill and you find a nice picture and you kind of peel it back a little bit and see what's behind it? Yeah, yeah, right? See, we think things like assessed value and appraised value give us true worth. I want to share with you what's going on in verse 16 as we see the authenticity of the nation of Israel, the authenticity evaluated by God of what was happening. Look at verse 16 with me. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. You see, I believe God wholeheartedly has an authentic meter that he uses to gauge the trueness of who we are. Matter of fact, he, Jesus would even say, you will know them by their fruit. Right? You'll know them by their fruit. There's something that gets put off by a Christian when we're walking according to God's ways, when we have the fruit of the Spirit living in us, all those things that Paul teaches us. There are certain things that are produced by our life and by our witness and I would argue they, they err on the side of revealing our authenticity in our life, right? One of the things Shannon and I realized we would do as pastors here, as, as the pastor, her as the pastor's wife, is we would invite people to our home instead of going and intruding their home. Because you know what it's like when the pastor wants to go to your house, right? You know what it's like, you sinners, right? I've been there. You go in and you got to hide all the liquor bottles. You got to clean off the counters. You got to get those movies off the VHS that you were just watching because you think the pastor doesn't want to see that stuff. And your wife is going through the house like a tornado before the pastor and his wife show up. Right? So we said, you know what? Let's do this. Let's change the paradigm. Let's invite our families to our home so they can come into our house and see how we're living. Now that means, honey, we got to clean up real quick. Let's get all this right. Just kidding. But we thought about that. Authenticity. When you walk into our house, when we walk into your house, what better way to know how you live than to go into your house and see what's happening? Isn't it wonderful that God gets to go in our house every single day of the week? Authenticity is verified. In this scripture, we see a few ways that it's verified. Number one, it's identified first. Now, I would argue most of you are doing what the nation of Israel did here in this very beginning of verse 16 when you decided to come here today. Notice what the text says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Y'all catch that part? Notice it doesn't say in the text that they spoke with everybody that was part of the nation of Israel. No, what's not said in the text is there were those in the nation of Israel who wasn't fearing the Lord. There are those today that we've baptized in our waters that we can't find anywhere in the church environment being discipled as followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't it funny that we make a deliberate choice to associate with one another because there's something about us that unites us? And I'd argue the thing that unites us as a church of Jesus Christ, number one, is the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Number two is the fact that we want to stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters that are living out our faith with authenticity. Now, don't confuse authenticity with perfection. There is no such thing. We're all sinners saved by grace who occasionally sin and repent of it and stay in right fellowship with God. That's the life of the church. Grace, grace, wonderful grace. Folks, that's what we live under every single day. But authenticity was identified here in this passage. And those who were authentic in their fear for the Lord gathered together and noticed they even spoke to one another. Some of y'all ain't spoke to each other in forever. Right? I mean, that's the fellowship that we have, that Acts 2, 42 through 48, that koinonia fellowship where the body of Christ, as Paul would call it, the household of God, we've gathered together. There's something different about here because Lord knows this Sunday morning, there are a hundred of other options where you could have been, but you chose to come together because I would argue, you know, there are brothers and sisters who fear the Lord, just like you, who want to be in fellowship, just like you who want to gather together and share our burdens with one another, to smile, to hug, to rejoice, to love on one another, to let others know you're not in this alone. We're here together. And God has called his church to be salt and light to the world. But not only was there authenticity identified, secondly, there was authenticity recognized. Now notice what happens. You can't see it on the screen, right? But look in your Bible for a moment. 
Look what happens in the second sentence of verse 16. The Lord paid attention and heard them. You ever heard the adage, actions speak louder than words? Your talky-talky don't match your walkie-walkie. You ever heard of that said that way? Maybe you got that Missouri license plate that says the show me state, right? We want to know, is it real? Is it authentic? Do we have what it takes to be the people of God? Are we living the way that others would see Jesus reflected in us if they were looking at our life? And I promise you, if you confess the name of Jesus, there's somebody wanting to watch your walk with Christ. And because of the way we are walking with Christ, they're making an assumption about the God of creation by his people. But notice what God does. God doesn't have to make an assumption. He knows exactly what's happening. God knows the authenticity and he recognizes it. Notice the scripture says the Lord paid attention. Not just because of their words. He knew and saw their heart. It was revealed to him. There was authenticity of the gatherers together. There was authenticity that God recognized. You know we can't hide anything from God. We're on point number two. The authenticity they recognize a psalmist in Psalm 136, 139 verses 1 through 6 would say it this way. The psalmist says the following. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You see, there's nothing that we can hide from God. He knows the deepest, darkest sin of our life. And if you're saved, let me remind you, you've been forgiven of that. If you've repented of that sin and you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, he's cast it in the depths of the ocean, never to be seen again. Folks, it's gone. We're the only ones that bring it back up. But God knows our innermost ways. The psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, verse 2, You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path by my lying down, and you're reacquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Man, isn't that tough? You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. You see, God recognizes who we are, and he pays attention. Not only did he pay attention to Israel here, but he pays attention to you and I. Those of us that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, folks, we are his church, his bride, his people. You're going to see in a moment we are his treasured possessions. God cares about what you and I do. But under authenticity evaluated point number two, let me share with you the last thing we see here, authenticity remembered. Authenticity remembered. See, there's a continuity, and I think this is amazing. I was sharing this in our Sunday school class this morning in our new members class. I think it's absolutely fabulous when we can connect Old Testament all the way through and see the New Testament even more vibrant and more alive. Now think about it this way. You ever invested in a stock and a bond in a mutual fund or a Roth IRA or something like that? And you sat down and you tried to make the decision of what am I going to invest my hard-earned money in? Where am I going to put it? What, what am I going to look for? Right? And what we want to know, whether we're Wall Street stockbrokers or not, we know that we want to look for something that started here and it's up here now. And it's got a constant track record of growing and growing and growing. Because that's the fund that I'm going to put stock in that it continues to grow upon itself year after year after year, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of understanding to know that's what we're looking for. But you know, we can do the same thing when we invest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we invest in taking scripture for what it is. The inherent word of God without error, without problem, without blemish, that it is fully sufficient for us. We see from Old Testament where God starts it here and all the way through the New Testament, it continues to build upon itself without error, without flaw, without problem. And it just gets better and better and gooder and gooder, doesn't it? Man, anytime I can help show that from the beginning to the end, let me give you one of these. The authenticity that remembered here. The continuity of Old Testament and New Testament are in agreement about this issue about a little book. A little book that was written. You see, in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32, if you'll go to point number two for me, the third bullet, that'll get everybody back on track if you can get there. And I've given you the scripture references so you can write it down in your notes. Exodus 32 verses 32. 
Let me share with you what was going on in Exodus. You see, Moses was there playing on behalf of the, the people of God and their sinful, hard-necked, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, all of those things are going on. And here's what Moses says to God about this issue of some book that comes on the scene in the Old Testament. Moses says the following in Exodus 32, verse 32. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see... First instance of a book being kept by God of sins and transgressions. And it's going to continue to progress. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, he would talk about this book. Let's skip all the way to Revelation 20 verse 11 and 12. And let's see what the prophetic book of the New Testament tell us about this book that was written. The New Testament writer John, while he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, says the following. He says, then I saw a great white throne and whom who seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural by the way, were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now let's go back to our passage in Malachi for a minute and get the context of what's happening here. In the last part of this, in, in verse 15, excuse me, verse 16, the Lord says, The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. You know that when you came to Christ, when you repented of your sins and you put your faith and trust that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except by me, when you believe in the fact that he was crucified on Golgotha's hill, dead, buried, and the third day he rose again, and when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do you know that your name got written in what this book tells us is the book, the, the Lamb's book of life? That our names in Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness, are now inscribed, not in the books of all of our sins and trespasses, but in the book of salvation. And one day when we stand before God, you know what's going to happen? I just had a co-worker. He's 42 years old. I got a call uh, last week, this week, matter of fact. I guess it was last week. Got a call that somewhere between Frankfurt and Chicago Airport, he died on the plane coming home. 42 years old. Great job. Traveled all around the world. Don't know exactly how he died, but I know tomorrow they'll be preaching his memorial service in Savannah, Georgia. But did you know that... Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That when we come to Christ, there's an inscription given to us in the word of God. And we don't know how long our life will be. But we know that if we don't confess Jesus as Lord. I'm not trying to guilt you all into a trip here. But the reality is this. God gives us a certain amount of days that we live. We don't know when our last breath will be. But I do know this. When I stand before God, whatever the last day, when Jesus comes, listen, here's the truth, y'all. Y'all ain't got to worry about when Jesus comes back, eschatology and all those big fancy words. Here's what I know to be true. When you draw your last breath, you'll be standing in the presence of Jesus. And what's going to happen is he's going to open a book and he's going to scroll down and he's going to go to the V's because he knows me by my first name, y'all. He's going to go to Virgil and he's going to look and he's going to see his Virgil here. Wait, Virgil Smith, Virgil Jones, Virgil... I'm sweating already, y'all, right? Virgil Dwyer. Oh, come on in. You're in the book. You're good. Now, let me, let me share with you. I didn't write my name in the book. He wrote my name in the book. And the only way your name gets written in the book is if you profess his name as Lord and Savior, the name above all names, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Folks, God writes in that book. We don't get a hand in that. But we do have a say-so as to whether or not we confess our sins, recognize our need for repentance, allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's on us, perhaps even right now, to know you need salvation. And there's only one way that you get it. Although my sin be as red as crimson, it's been washed white as wool. Although it's red as scarlet, it's been made white as snow. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I wouldn't be so surprised to find that that name was actually written in Jesus' blood. How about that? You know, there was a time that that's how they wrote when they didn't have ink. But if nothing else, I know that my name was bought and purchased with the blood of Jesus. 
Isn't it wonderful to know that our names, that God pays attention to us, that there's absolute authenticity evaluated, and when we come to Christ, there are fruits in our life that identify us as believers in Jesus. You will know them by their fruit, and Jesus will remember us when he writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. That day is short. We've got a lot of work to do, amen? But number three, I want to share with you in verse 17 that there's a possession that's now secured because of what Christ has done and a possession that was secured here for Malachi and Israel because God chose to make Israel his possessed people. Notice the promise that he conveys in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Who's they? Those that were written in the book of remembrance. I would argue we could apply that same scripture to you and I, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. They shall be mine, a possession secured by the Lord Jesus, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Let me give you three elements of a God-sized security deposit. We all know what that's like, right? You go to buy a house, or you want to buy a car, or you want to buy that special gift for your wife for Christmas. All right, ladies, I said it, all right? And you know what it's like. You've got to give a security deposit to hold it so it'll be there when you come back, right? Let me give you three elements of a God-sized security deposit that we have regarding our salvation that we know for sure. Number one, God declared his ownership over Israel and over the Gentile nation today. In Ephesians verses one, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, listen to the declared ownership that the writer makes. He says, In him you also, and in him's being Jesus Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Folks, you are not your own any longer. When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residency in your heart Isn't it wonderful in the Old Testament we look at the tabernacle and we look at the temples being built. We look at all those things that God gave us a foreshadow of, as the writer of Hebrews would say, a foreshadow of an image of what the tabernacle looked like in heaven. And we've spent all this time trying to create something to contain God into a house made by human hands, which we know scripture says God cannot be contained by anything made by human hands. Isn't it wonderful again to see the stocks climbing when we realize where does God truly dwell? He dwells in the heart of the man and guess who built that house? He did. He created a male and female in his image and in his likeness. Isn't it wonderful to know the continuity of scripture that where does God dwell? He doesn't dwell in this building. Tornado could wipe this thing out tomorrow. Guess what? That's not where the church dwells. That's not where the Spirit of God dwells. He dwells within the heart of you and I. He sealed them with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to praise of his glory. Folks, God declared his ownership over your soul when you came to Christ Jesus. He declared ownership of everything you do from that moment forward. You represent As an ambassador of Christ, as Paul would write about this issue, we are ambassadors of Christ. We represent the kingdom of God here on earth. I think sometimes our kingdom's got a little rust on it. We've got to knock it off and scrub it down and get it shining again. So we as the church can truly be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden that we've been called to be. God declared his ownership over Israel, and he declares it in the New Testament over those who confess the name of Jesus. But notice, secondly, the text tells us that God has a possessed the treasure that is there. God's possessed treasure are those who call him Lord, Lord, who have been washed by the blood of the cross. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying the following about this issue of giving a reward to those who belong to him. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, there's no fear when I think about Jesus' return in Christ Jesus. Now, there will, will there be some regret? You better believe it. There'll be some regret, and Lord, I wish I'd have done this, and I wish I had done that, and I wish I'd have been more faithful here, and maybe I should have went on that trip that I decided not to go on, or maybe I shouldn't have done this. There's going to be probably some regret in our life, because we don't always seize the day, if you will. But however, there will be a great reward regardless of our regret. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica about this issue that some were proclaiming that Christ had already come, that the resurrection had already occurred. Now you could imagine, right, if I showed up like I did at COVID on that very first Sunday after we had shut down, and if I hadn't known it was COVID and the 11 o'clock hour came and I was fixing to preach and the pews were empty, I would maybe think the rapture had occurred. But then again, I know some of y'all, so I know that's not the case. Y'all have been here with me, right? (laughs) So it's all good. But God says he's going to take his treasure possession. And Paul was saying in Thessalonica to the church there, and he explained to them the following. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul was saying, that's unlike you guys. The rapture hasn't occurred, y'all. It's to come. The best is yet to come. Wait for it. We are God's possessed treasure. It's what he says here. And God is going to treat us with a bestowed privilege that only is generally reserved for family. Let me share with you the last part of this verse in 17. God's bestowed privilege. What do we have here? He says, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Y'all ever work for a boss that had youngins and those youngins became older and those youngins started working for the company and that youngin wasn't a real good worker? Y'all know where I'm going with this, right? But that youngin continued to work his way up the ladder. Next thing you know, that youngin, that young man, that young woman is now your boss. You've been working at the company for 20 years. You know 10 times more than he does, but yet he's still the boss because he's related to the family. And you know his daddy owns the company, and he's the boss because of who he knows, not what he knows. Y'all with me? Right? And now we despise that, don't we? But aren't we glad that's going to be the case in Christ Jesus? Because what we're going to get... In Christ isn't because of what we deserve or what we know or what we earn. God's going to bestow upon us a privilege of sonship. Notice what he tells the nation of Israel, Malachi 3.17. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Folks, that's what we've got in Christ Jesus. We don't deserve it. We didn't work for it. And there will be a lot of folks. I've heard it said this way. There will be three people that will be in heaven. Number one, there will be people that will be there that I didn't think were going to be there. Number two, there were people that aren't there that I thought would be there. And number three, last of all, I'll be surprised the fact I made it myself, right? Those three types of folks that will be in heaven or won't be. Isn't it wonderful that the word of God tells us he will treat us like sons, although we don't deserve the promotion, although we don't deserve the position. It's not what we did to deserve it that warrants it. It's what he did for us that we can stand fully assured that we are clothed in his righteousness He who knew no sin became sin so that we may be his righteousness. Folks, that's the God we serve. That's the God and the possession secured that he has done for us. Let me give you an image of what this looks like. It's an image of a doorpost. And this would have been the first understanding of the Passover, the nation of Israel, when the exodus was taking place and Israel was leaving Egypt out of bondage. And the death angel was going to come over that night and destroy the family. And they were told to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost, the lentils of the posts that you see represented in that image. And when the death angel came by that night, the scripture tells us that every home that was protected by the blood of the lamb, the death angel continued to move on by. They were safe. But it didn't work out so well for Pharaoh's household or anybody else that wasn't protected by the blood of the lamb. But you know the very same thing will occur one day if your doorpost of your heart of your home. Home is where your heart is, right? Yeah. Well, if your heart hasn't been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb, the death angel may not pass you by. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Make sure that the blood of Jesus has secured you as his possession. That's the only way that it happens and it's great security in Romans 8, 38 and 39 that we know that nothing can separate me. Let me share with you this verse. If you don't have it written down, jot it down in your notes. I am a firm believer, once saved, always saved. Y'all wait, it's not over. If you're saved. If you bought fire insurance, there's no help for you except Jesus. 
come to Jesus. Once saved, always saved, if you're saved. If you're not saved, you're just playing church. Forget about it. Your fire insurance policy is not written worth the paper it's written on. But if you got Jesus, you got the blood on the lintel of your heart, the death angel is going to pass you over. Your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Let me close with point number four. You might get out of here before Thanksgiving. There's a distinction that God gives. A distinction. Now, don't we know things by distinction? I mean, we do. What do we like to? We call it judging, whatever you want to call it. But we recognize things for what they are. What kind of car you drive, what kind of shoes you wear, what kind of job you have, white collar, blue collar. We've got all these kind of labels for the nations and the tribes and the ethnicities and all that stuff. Folks, we live in a culture that understands distinctions being made. But isn't it beautiful, the distinction that's rendered in verse 18 here? God recognizes, I think, two things. I've got to preach at a Methodist church one time. They never invited me back. But nonetheless, I'll tell you the story. I go in and I ask them, I said, how many of y'all here, y'all know I'm Baptist, right? Oh, yeah. How many of y'all here have been sprinkled, right? A couple of them raised their hand. Most of them raised their hand. They kind of put their head down. All right, where are you going with this, right? Good bridge builder I am. Then the next question, how many of y'all have been baptized by immersion? They all, a couple of them raised their hands, out, shoot, uh, hooting and hollering. And I said, well, here's the deal. If you don't have Jesus, all you got was wet. doesn't matter which way. If you ain't got Jesus, all you got was wet. There's a distinction that God will render. Look with me in verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now notice a few things that are happening here. There's a distinction made based on works and what's going on. God, again, you will know them by their fruit, right? You know, the New Testament is clear in several places that God has given every believer in Jesus Christ at least one spiritual gift. Some of us have many. Some of us have one, but we don't know what a clue is because we never began serving. Diakonos, diakoneo, diakonia. This aspect of ministering or serving the body of Christ. Folks, God didn't give us that gift to sit on it. Imagine that come Christmas time when your husband, who put the deposit for that gift that he's supposed to buy you, right? That's twice, ladies. He does this, and then he leaves it in the closet, and he forgets that he had it. And Christmas morning, you go down, you unwrap all your presents, everything's happy, and you're happy, but something just didn't feel right because you saw the checking account. You know, the check, you know how much it cost. You know how much was taken out, right? And then he forgot to bring it out, and he forgot about it for a while. Then all of a sudden, come February, Valentine's Day, like the good husband he brings it out and gives it to you then because he says, baby, I had to save up enough money to get it, right? What would I imagine if we kept the gift of the good news and we didn't give it to those who need it? If we held on to the present and the gift that God has given us and we don't want to share it with nobody else, we just hoard it. Like that kid who doesn't share his toys. Because we're afraid that somebody else may find what we found and we're jealous of that. God says in serving him, we use that gift that he's given us. It does us no good to hang on to it. And a gift, a spiritual gift is a lot like churning butter, y'all. You pour into milk and the cream, but it takes a little while of churning that thing, whichever way you do it, this way or this way, whichever way you're churning it. It takes a while for that cream to come to the top. You finally realize just what you got in its goodness. You know, spiritual gifts work the same way. When you start serving God, that's God churning the spiritual cream of your life until it begins to form. And the best thing that you could do and the best gift he's given you, it begins to mold and take shape and it begins to rise to the top to all of a sudden it's fit to be used in serving his body. But it doesn't normally rise to the top until it starts getting churned. Folks, God wants us to use his spiritual gifts that he's given us for the body of Christ. Let me share with you the distinctions that we have here. Number one, there's a need for reminding once more, he says in the text, once more, as if this hadn't been enough. Now, remember, this is the book of the Bible that we, when this book ends, y'all, we have about 400 years. We call it the intertestimonial period where there's no more of God speaking to the nation of Israel. There's no more hearing from the nation of, from, from God. There's no more of the nation. Now, we've got a few other, y'all bear with me. 
right? Apocrypha, other books that were written of history of what was going on, First and Second Maccabees, Clement, and a few other books. If you've got a Catholic Bible, you'll see them in there. They're actual, fictional history of what took place. But God doesn't speak to the nation of Israel again for over 400 years. Then all of a sudden we have the Gospels come on the scene. Behold, the Lamb of God, as John would say, that takes away the sins of the world. And the messenger God used in John the Baptist to proclaim and make way the way of the Lord. There's a need of reminding. Why? Because we often, as D.L. Moody, he would say this, and I've got an image of D.L. Moody's quote. He says, the fact is, we are leaky vessels and we have to keep right under the fountain all the time to keep full of Christ. And so have a fresh, fresh supply. Look, that's, that's our life. That was the life of Israel. And God says here, then once more you shall see the distinction. He, over and over and over, we need this reminder for some reason. Because we are, as Moody would say, leaky vessels. As Paul would put it in a few ways, clay, jars of clay. Uh, we are over and over needing to stay close and be reminded of what God has done. And this reminder comes in the way of a distinction. Notice, secondly, the distinction is rendered here between what he calls righteous and wicked. Now, sometimes the word righteous can be taken wrong. Righteous doesn't mean self-righteous, y'all. Right? When you go to the waiter today or you're out in public today or you're shopping and you see someone acting in the world because they're in the world, but yet you expect them to act like Jesus, you don't have to be self-righteous in addressing that person. What we should do is humble ourselves and take the opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. Because why do we expect the natural man to live outside of his natural state when he doesn't have the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in him? Even in church, Families will come, children will come, and children will act like children act at home when they've been churched by the world for six days a week. And then we get them for an hour and you expect them to act differently. Folks, until Christ is in our life, I know this much, until Christ was in my life, you wouldn't want me standing in your pulpit. Amen? We need a little distinction between righteousness and wicked. Righteous to be salt and light to the world. But notice he calls the wicked that there is a clear line between the two. Too often, I think, in the church, we get caught up on this. Don't judge me. Judge not, lest thou shalt be judged, preacher. No, I don't judge you, but I'll tell you what he has called me to be. He's called me to be a fruit inspector. FDA approved, y'all. Right? That's what God's called us to be as his church, uh, to know and recognize the fruit. There's a distinction that God renders between those who are righteous, meaning in right standing with God. And if there's any confusion to point... There is only one way you can become in right standing with God, and that is to have your sins washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. To repent of your sins, to confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and to begin walking with him as your Lord and Savior. You can't get one without the other, folks. He wants to be both in your life. Don't believe the lie that he'll take you just the way you are. He will, but he will not leave you there. When you come to Christ, he wants 100% of who you are, all of you, not a part of you. He don't want your Sunday mornings. He doesn't want your Wednesday nights. He doesn't want your bank account. He wants every fiber of who you are. James 1, through 25, remind us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I find it wonderful that James doesn't say deceiving God because God knows, right? Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. He knows our ways. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who we believe wrote this epistle, who was not a believer in Jesus until we see James in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 with the other disciples gathered. And James, his brothers, and his mother are there after the ascension. And now guess what? The scriptures say they were all together in prayer. Up until the crucifixion, James and his brothers thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They played Tonka trucks together, y'all, in the dirt. I mean, they saw Jesus for who he was, the son of Mary. They grew up with him and had a difficult time believing who he was, even when they saw the miracles. And Jesus even remarked, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Some of the hardest people you'll reach are your family for Jesus. But afterwards, the witness, James is there. Now James says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. I'll close it out with this. John 3.17, Jesus says the following regarding the qualifications that are given. The servants of God versus the servants of the devil. You're one or the other. 
I know that sounds harsh, isn't it? But you're one or the other. You either serve God or you serve manna. Mammon. You can't serve both. You can't serve the world and be about the kingdom's business. Now, we can be in the world, but not of the world. We live in it to be salt and light. Our true purpose is to proclaim the gospel. John 13, 17, Jesus would say the following. If you know these things, blessed are you. If. I love that clause statement, right? Blessed are you if you do them. Man, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? One thing to have 66 books of wisdom and God's prophecy, God's will known for man. It's another that when we put them to action in our daily life. Well, how do we do that? Let me share with you our final image. It's the image of the cross. God is faithful in remembrance, not only for what we have done here, but he's going to remember what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary one day. And as that scripture states, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me ask you, do you know him today as your Lord and Savior? With every head bowed and every eye closed as we go to our time of invitation. If you're here today and you're under conviction that you need salvation and you need the forgiveness of your sin and you feel drawn by the Holy Spirit, I will urge you, plead with you, compel you, don't leave this building, this facility, without talking to me. I'm not going to make you walk down an aisle. If you want to walk down the aisle and come talk with me now, that's fine. But I'd much rather have a private conversation with you and make sure you understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ, what it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Don't leave here today if that's the Holy Spirit calling you into a relationship with him. In church, for you and I, the application of our word today is God is faithful in remembering what we have done for him, what we will do for him, and what he has done for us. May we live a life worthy of our calling. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And as we leave this place, we pray that you have used this to prepare us for this week and the opportunities that will present themselves as we proclaim the gospel truth to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors. Father, help us to truly indeed be a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. We thank you for this day. And Father, if there's one here under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, knowing their need for salvation, and we pray that you will continue to show them their need. And Father, help them to confess you as Lord and Savior this day. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.